Hey, I'm Kendall. Thanks for checking out this message today. We're glad you're here and we would love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way to do that is to text RiverConnect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. So I've mentioned it a couple times over the last couple weeks uh, that we've been having a lot of family in town, Uh, and so this weekend was finally our first reprieve, where it was just Meg and I. Uh, and we could hang out and, and uh, be together and, and rest a little bit uh, and not clean the house over and over and over again. Um, and, but it was interesting, um, as my sister, she came up to stay with my mom and, and our family, and, um, and I, as my sister was here, I, anytime I'm around my sister now, it's interesting because our relationship growing up was so drastically different than it is now. Now I look at my sister and I'm like, man, did like our parents clone us? Like we are like the same people. It is weird. Do you think the same things are funny? I will go to her and be like, hey, I have this show that like I, I think you need to watch. And she's like, I've been watching that show too. And I was going to come and tell you, right? And she gets along so well with my wife, Meg, to the point where like I think they're closer sometimes than we are. Um, and, and it's really cool because she really fits in to our family. It's awesome when she's around um, because we love each other so much. But growing up, this was not the case at all. My sister's younger than me, and we were mortal enemies. And when I say, like, mortal enemies, like, it was not like, oh, there's occasional bickering and, like, you know, the younger sister will annoy, you know, the, the older brother. It was like, no, like, we would go at each other. I remember, like, there was one time in specific, I was, like, uh, I was uh, late in middle school, and, like, some lady in our church sat us down and out of nowhere, and she was like, you guys got to stop fighting. And I'm like, I don't even know who you are. Like, how do you know that we're fighting? Apparently, it was really evident to everyone else. But I remember there was one time, that one, one instance that I always look back at that I'm like, Josie, you need to remember this because you were just as much at fault as I was. So when we were in, uh, when I was younger in elementary school and I was growing up, you know, I, I'm not a small person by any means of imagination, and so I like to eat. And so my parents were quickly realizing that uh, me being a growing boy and liking to eat was going to mean quickly I was going to eat them out of the house. And so they instituted this rule, and the rule was, hey, you can't just go in the pantry, you can't just go and get whatever food you want, you have to come and you have to ask for permission to get something so that you don't spoil the dinner, so that you don't get to be an even bigger boy than you already are, right? And, and so there was, that rule was put in place. Now, in my family, you really only got in trouble for two things, lying and defying, right? So if I lied to my parents, big trouble. If I did, was disobedient or defiant to my parents, big trouble. And I remember there's this one day, uh, and my mom My dad was working, and my mom had made a fresh pan of brownies. And if you've ever had my my mom's brownies, oh man, like they are to die for. And 
Uh, and I remember they were sitting out on the counter, and my mom went outside to do some yard work. And I came upstairs, because I smell brownies, and I saw them, and I was like, man, those brownies, they're looking good, right? And I'm like, man, I, <sighs> mom just made these fresh, right? She wouldn't want them to, to get cold, and so I definitely need to get me some of those brownies. And I remember going over and looking at them, be like, you know, just salivating, praying that, you know, somehow I would get the whole pan to myself. And I remember I was getting ready to go outside to ask my mom, hey, can I have some brownies? And my sister stops me on the way, and she goes, hey, mom told us if you wanted some brownies to just eat, eat your brownies, right? Like, just get the brownies. And me, being intoxicated with the smell of brownies, fell, right? I was tempted, and that temptation overcame me. I said, that is great, Josie. I'm so glad that you stopped me before going outside, and I cut myself a big, like, quarter of the pan, right? And just sat down and started to eat some brownies. And then as I'm sitting and eating brownies, my dad, lo and behold, comes home from work. And he looks, he says, we're getting ready to have dinner. Why do you have a quarter pan of brownies and you're just sitting there eating it? And I said, well, they were fresh made brownies, dad. First of all, you need to understand that. And second of all, you need to understand that Josie told me that mom said it was okay. And he goes, uh, I don't think that's true. I'm going to go outside and double check. And lo and behold, I was lied to. I was tricked. There was no such imperative given, and I was in trouble. And I remember being so frustrated at my sister. I mean, we ended up both getting in trouble, thankfully. You know, I got my justice, okay? But I remember being so frustrated for so long because I was like, you lied to me. You tricked me. You were the one that got me into that situation where I got in big trouble. But the more and more that I think about that situation, and as humorous as it is, truthfully, there was a simple solution, right? The simple solution to that issue was to not trust my sister, who I know we butt heads, and to just simply go and double check and ask mom. Right? It wouldn't have been difficult. It would have been hard. It really wouldn't have taken much time out of my day. The brownies still would have been warm. They still would have been sitting on the counter. Nothing really would have changed except maybe I wouldn't have got what I wanted. And honestly, that's really what it came down to. The heart of the issue was there was something that I wanted, and I was more focused on the immediate desire of my heart than I was the direction that I had been given that could save me a lot of trouble in the long run, right? I was a lot more focused on what my heart wanted, or more importantly, what my stomach wanted, which was the warm pan of brownies, and that immediate desire that was right in front of me that I wasn't thinking about the long term. That the long term didn't seem to make much of a difference to me in that moment. And truthfully, it showed where my heart was. And so as we, as believers, live in this world, we have to make sure that our heart is in the right place. That our heart is not focused on the immediate, on what's right in front of us, on maybe what our desires may be in our fleshly world and this brokenness. But instead, that our heart 
is focused on when Christ comes. That our desires are focused on living through his direction and in obedience. And we're going to talk about that this morning. So if you would, bow with me and pray as we jump in. Lord, I'm so thankful. Lord, I'm so thankful this morning as we wrap up Revelation to have such an amazing gift, the gift of your word and the gift of the promises and the visions that you gave John for us so that we could know, so that we could understand and that we could have hope in a failing world. And Lord, this morning as we look, I pray that you'd give me clarity and that only truth would reign this morning. Lord, because we look and aim to please you. In your precious name, Jesus' name, amen. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. We're closing up our Revelation series this morning. Um, and it's been an interesting road, right? Some of you have been in and out, you know, with family vacations or going up north. Some of you have been here week after week after week. And we've been walking through all these different things in the book of Revelation between the, his letters to the seven churches, Christ's letters to the seven churches, or this tribulation period and all the different things that come out as God pours his wrath and judgment out on the world, or whether it was the millennial reign or the judgment seat of Christ, or last week as we looked at heaven, all these different things, we've been looking to them all. We've been looking at what... The revelation is, what this revelation given to John is, and what it means. And each week I've kind of been emphasizing two things as we get started. The first one has always been that this is about Christ. This whole book, this whole revelation is about Christ, the Lamb, right? Our, our salvation that comes from Him and the eternal reward that is given to us because of Him. And that revelation is meant to produce more and more honor and reverence for Christ who created and in the end will destroy and then create and bring about this new heaven and new earth. But the second thing is, I've always talked about how revelation is meant to change us now. Right, kind of tagline I've said is, you know, John wasn't given the book of Revelation and told to put it, you know, in a spiritual time capsule that was to be opened later. Or he talked about how really it's meant to be something that is given to us now to shape the way that we live as we wait. And the truth of the matter is, I didn't just make that up, right? Hopefully you guys understood that. Hopefully you would never assume that I'm up here making stuff up, but... That is exactly the imperative that John is given as this book closes. And we're going to look this morning at what that means. But as we jump into Revelation 22, it's, it's important to understand what directly followed, right? We're looking at the very end of this book where John is given this revelation, specifically at the end of this new heaven, this new earth, and the new Jerusalem that has come. And how we are living in this, this new earth, and new heaven, and new Jerusalem, and how God is with us. And, and it is this happy moment of awesome, 
life. Where there is no more sin, there's no more hurt, there's no more crying, there's nothing but joy as we live alongside of the Lord. And this picture is left for us to understand that that is eternity. That's what happens forever. And so a lot of times we think of, all right, well, that's when Revelation's done. But in Revelation chapter 22, there's this final conversation that happens between the angel that revealed, between John, and between Jesus. And as we look at this time, this conversation between the three of them, we see that John is kind of given two distinct things, and those things are meant ultimately for him to communicate them to us. The first one is John gives us a reminder, or or the angel gives to John a reminder to pass along to us. He wants us to remind us of why we have the book. And the second thing is a promise that needs to be passed on to us. A promise of what is to come and what that promise should mean for us. So let's dive in this morning. Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 10. Jump down to verse 10. It says this. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Right? That's exactly what I've been saying, right? It's not meant to be a spiritual time capsule. Don't seal it up. Don't put it away. In fact, you need to have it ready. It needs to be ready. And every week I've tried to emphasize this because this is the closing, imparting statement, right, that is left with John. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't hide it away. Don't try and pretend like it doesn't exist. Don't ignore it. Don't be scared of it. But read it. Study it. Obey it. Don't be afraid, but let it bring joy. What he's saying here is, this book should stir up a response in you. You shouldn't just put it away. You shouldn't just leave it. But instead, immediately as you read, as you study, as it's been revealed to you, John, and as you write and you distribute it to all these different churches, the response should always be urgency. It shouldn't be a complacent thing where it's like, oh, you know, I'll study that when I'm a little bit more spiritual. Which is so often how we respond. But instead, he says, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. The time is near. Keep it on your minds. It's coming. It's going to be around the corner. The time is near when Jesus will return. So make sure people know. But a lot of times as I think of how the world views the end times and the apocalypse, it's really crept into our hearts as believers as well. Right? Truthfully, I think that the world has really gotten sick of this whole end of the world trope. Right? For a while it seemed like, Every movie or every TV show was about what was going to happen, what was going to be that world-ending thing. 
right? You, you have, whether it was zombies or, you know, atomic apocalypse or aliens, whatever it may be, everyone seemed to be focused on what was coming and this end that was inevitable. And even that crept into our life fears, right? It seemed like every 10 years there was another thing that happened that pushed people into this fear of, oh, it's now, it's happening right now. Right, you had Y2K and the whole fiasco with that. You had the 2012 Mayan calendar, and there were people that were like, oh, yeah, that's clearly a sham. But there was another group of people that were like, oh, that's actually for real, right? Or even COVID when it came around, right? When the initial lockdown happened, there was this immediate fear of what's happening? What's happening? Is this the end? Is this the time? And you saw that evident in all the different things. We're fighting over toilet paper. That's how scared we are of the end, right? And we laugh now, but in the moment, there was a general sense of fear. And I think more and more, we've become apathetic to it. We've become jaded. And now, it feels like we're end times out, right? And when we talk about this return of Jesus, a lot of times we think about it in the sense of, well, it hasn't really happened in the 2,000 years since John and us, so, you know, if we're doing the probability, it probably won't happen in my lifetime. And that's the trap we get put into, We're end times now. We say, oh, it's not that big a deal. I don't need to think about it as imminent. I don't need to think about it as something that's coming. I don't need to think about it in terms of it's right around the corner. But God knew when this was going to happen. God knows when the end times is going to start and when it's going to come. And yet, he still says, be Ready, the time is near. And so, we have to live as if this is true. Because it is. What God says is true. Now, we don't know when. We don't know exactly what that will look like. But the truth is, we're told to live as it's imminent. We don't know. And the truth is, we're told to live like it. And a lot of times it's interesting because people will give these scenarios, you know, of like, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, right? And, and we talk about it in terms of that, like, think about how you would live if Jesus was coming back tomorrow. And I don't think this is a very good hypothetical uh, hypothetical, because we all immediately are like, well, I'd sell my house, and I'd do, you know, this, that, or the other thing to make sure these people knew, and I would start doing crazy, crazy things, right? But I think a really good hypothetical that I've been challenging myself with this last week was, what would you do if you knew, knew Jesus was coming next year? Right? You got a year to do all this stuff. Obviously, you have a house, so you can't just sell your house and start wandering. Right? So you have to be reasonable about how you are going to live with the imminent expectation that Jesus is coming. The truth is, life would look different. The way that you sought to reach your family members 
would look different. The intensity in which your prayer life was conducted would look different. Worship on Sunday would be a lot more excited and expectant because we know it's coming soon. There's an anticipation. Your mindset and life changes. And as I thought about that this week, I got really convicted. Because I looked and I said, man, maybe I need to live with a little bit more expectation. Maybe I need to heed the words of Christ more than I am right now. And understanding it's coming. And it's coming soon. And we see as we continue in verse 11, this truth is further impressed upon us. Right? It's further talked about, and it's talked about, about you can clearly see the distinction. Jump to verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. Once again, it said, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay Each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And so once again, there is this picture of the people who understand salvation, the people who understand of what's to come, the people who are waiting expectantly will live differently. Those who follow their heart, they're going to do what their heart wants to do. Those who are following their fleshly impulses, they're going to keep doing that. But those who understand Those who understand that it's right around the corner. Those who understand that Christ will come and he will fulfill exactly what it says. They will live differently. The righteous will remain righteous. They will continue in obedience. The holy will remain holy. They will live set apart. They will look different. And over and over and over again we say it will continue. And we've talked about these ideas of living obedient and living holy lives and how throughout the book of Revelation, this has been a recurring thing. He says, look at what's to come and live out of it. And over and over and over, we see this same truth echoed and we see John is told, and it will continue. People either will see it or they won't. And truthfully, you will understand, you will see Who you are is shown in who you serve. Who you are is shown in who you serve. If you serve the evil flesh, guess what? Evil is going to be what you do. If you serve the fickled heart, guess what? Your decisions will only look more and more filthy. But when you serve Christ, when you serve a holy God, you will be made righteous. And Paul, he writes a letter to Titus. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. 
And in Titus chapter 3, Paul, as he's writing, he's echoing this same mentality. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. If you really have salvation, life will look different from you, for you. And the reason it'll look different is because it's not you, it's who saved you. And that helps you see and choose holiness instead of evil. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. He says, that's how you should live. That will show that you're serving someone different. But in verse 3, he says, the reason why it's different is because you're different. Follow along. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He says, when you were left in that old junk, there's no wonder you were living out that junk. And there's going to be people who they refuse to understand the salvation and what it means. They refuse to look ahead to the hope that we have in eternity. They refuse to let the word of God change them a lick. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to keep doing the same old junk. He says, but there's something else. And I love in scripture when we see words like but, because it immediately, sh- it, it, it changes something, it, it shifts, right, the perspective. And specifically in this passive, passage as we look, right, he's talking about all this junk, and I'm like, that was me. That was how I lived. That were the choices I made. And I'm looking, I'm like, oh, I don't want that to be me forever. And then I see words like but, and I go, oh, there's something else. Look at that. And I get excited. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the gospel. And we see there's this distinction that John has given about how people will live. He says there's going to be people who continue to live in their foolishness, continue to live in their selfishness, in their evil. And then there's going to be those of us who did live in that and who have the gospel, right? Who recognize that they lived sinfully, that they had sin. They had done things in disobedience to God. From the smallest white lie to the greatest sin you can imagine, it's corrupted us. 
And we were in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ, who came and he lived a perfect life as both God and man. And he went to the cross, and he took our punishment upon himself, which was a physical death and a spiritual weight and death of sin being placed upon him. And he died, and he rose again. And through repentance, through admittance that he is Lord and that he is Savior, and confession and repentance of our sin, we have a hope of eternal life. And that we've been given the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and renews us because we would not normally seek God. But he has sought us first. And he says, if you've been saved... If you have this, if this section of Titus defines you, or for John, if those people had, had joined the Lamb, their name had been written in the book of life, then anticipation should and will be your response. You look to the coming Christ not in fear, but an excitement. And as you look at what's to come, you aren't jaded, but you're moved to live out obedience. And the problem comes in that complacency. When we let culture and Satan and our flesh try and say, you know, we'll do that whole Jesus thing next week. God's not going to be here tomorrow. God's not going to be here next year. You can figure it out. You got time. That whole study in your Bible thing, when things start looking more dire, that's when you need to start looking at that. And we're lied to and we're convinced of untruth. When it's far more simple to obey. And we should be reminded, and our hearts should immediately be concerned, because Scripture tells us it's coming soon. And so John is reminded, and that reminder is ushered to us, don't sit back. Don't kick it. Don't get distracted. Don't convince yourself, eh, we got time. Because it's coming soon. And then, as we continue to look at this last chapter, jump down to verse 16. After he's given, right, this reminder, this warning to us that's supposed to encourage us and push us out of apathy into concern, we see that as we look to Jesus' coming, there should be excitement. Excitement. Right? And as we look at our Revelation series, right, this Revelation series should impact us in a positive way. In a way that leads us to joy. Not in a like, oh, you know, that was a cool summer series, Right? Like, oh yeah, I'm glad we spent 19 weeks in Revelation. You know, and it was, it was cool. I learned some new things. But in, a, in a, 
excitement about Jesus in a new and unique way. And we see that, that sentiment continued and dove into more in verse 16 through 21. It says this. I, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the ten plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And I love John's response here. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all Amen. And it's interesting because as I had been reading throughout the whole book of Revelation and as I had been studying in the middle part of this series where we were looking at the tribulation, I was a little bit confused at first why that was John's response. Right? When he when when Jesus he says all these things and he says, Surely I'm coming soon, and, and John is like, All right. Come on. I looked and I'm like, wait, hold on. John, don't you remember like the ten plagues and like all the wrath and the judgment? Like if that were me, I'd be like, all right, give me some time, Jesus, right? Like I got to make sure that I get some people saved. I don't want that for them. And I was confused. Like why? Why wouldn't you ask for more time? Why wouldn't you be like trying to hold this off as much as possible? But as Our study continued, and as I looked more and more towards, specifically like last week, that that study on heaven and what heaven looks like, I began to understand that really, a lot of times we get this dreading of the end times, a dreading of Jesus coming. We become hyper fixated on certain things, and we're like, we want more time on earth, we want more time on earth. We want more time in this fading, broken, horrible reality that we live in. Give us more time. And I realized that I was missing a lot of what I talked about last week was that kingdom mindset. And as we've looked at heaven and the finality of eternity and how that was the culmination of all things that have happened and will happen in our world, I realized... That the emphasis here at the close of the book is not Jesus' judgment and wrath, but the fruit of salvation. And there's this moment where John is seeing Jesus' return as heaven coming to earth. Elsewhere in, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, it's talking about the judgment is coming soon. But here it is, the salvation is coming soon. Eternity is right around the corner. And then John's response makes a lot more sense. 
Right? He says, the fruit of all the suffering, the trials, the hardship, the, this all culminates in eternal salvation. And that truly comes. That salvation truly comes when Christ returns. And, and John is like, all right, come on then. He says, that hope, that Christ's coming is hope. That hope is what we see promised over and over and over in this passage. That hope is coming. It's right around the corner. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears says, come. And let the thirsty, those who are struggling, those who are weary, come. I warn everyone, I am coming soon. That promise is hope. And hope is what we need. That promise is hope. And truthfully, when I look at this section of Scripture, this, this close here to the book of Revelation, I see these promises as so incredibly encouraging. I look and I see the promises of Jesus coming as nothing less than the culmination of the salvation that I've been given. I look at, at these promises as the fruition of all struggle, of all hardship, of all pain. And Christ promising that it will be done. And, it, and when... John responds with that, come on, Jesus, I'm ready. It's the anthem of hope in a suffering world. It's the banner by which we wave when they're struggling, when obedience gets dif difficult, when temptation's around, when we're tired, when we're weary, when bad news comes. The banner that we wave is amen, come, Lord Jesus. When we look, when there's frustration in our families, when we look and things in our world get bleaker and bleaker, when judgment comes our way as we seek to live lives that are obedient to what Christ calls us to, amen, come, Lord Jesus. And this morning, as we close our series, truthfully, all I want to do is echo that same hope that John has. And that same hope that John is reminded to give to us because it is everything. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on behind closed doors. I don't know the uneasiness of your soul. I don't know whether you have salvation or you don't. But what I can remind you is, for those who believe in the truth of this gospel, hope is given to us. Hope 
in the form of a promise that Jesus is coming and he is coming soon. Hope in the form of a promise that all things will be redeemed. Hope in a promise in eternity in heaven. And as we close, the thing I want to remind you is just that one simple line, that one simple response that John has, has to be our response. When hardship comes, when there's frustration, when things look bleak, I'm, I've been trying to remind myself, my response has to be, amen, come Lord Jesus. And I leave that to you this morning, amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.